Today's episode features Chris Rundy. Chris is Senior Director of Strategic Development at CGH Technologies. Chris has been a key leader in driving innovation for the aviation industry. Do you like zipping through airport security with PreCheck? Well, Chris was a key force driving the effort. Need to incentivize startups to focus on your industry? Call Chris. He launched the Airport Shark Tank for the world's largest professional organization for airport executives. Need to understand where innovation and autonomy fits within the airport industry? Chris launched the Airport Innovation Accelerator and Innovation Forum for AAAE. Chris's career combines investing and innovation with a keen sense of where technology is headed next. In our show today, we talk about the role of autonomy at airports, trends in UAS applications, counter UAS as a business, lessons from the shark tank, do-do-do-do-do-do-do, and selling innovation to an established industry that some could say is fixed in its ways. Today's episode was recorded on November 22nd, 2019. Hang on. Welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy, a podcast to help you understand the promise and impact of autonomous land and air vehicles in our world. I'm Ken Dunlap, managing partner of Catalyst Go, taking you on this journey. Hear and read more at thinkingthroughautonomy.com. Now it's time to take your hands off the wheel, foot off the pedal, hand off that throttle, and let's go. Chris, thanks for making the time to join us today on Thinking Through Autonomy. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Ken. Happy to be here. So, you know, if, if you've heard previous episodes, my favorite part of this show is trolling through a guest's very old social media postings and finding something that they've forgotten that they've written about or was written about them. Are you ready to see how well our research has been over the last couple of weeks as we've been preparing for this interview? Uh, ready? Anxious? Curious? <laughs> <laughs> so this is what I think about you whenever I think about Chris Rundy, is that you're this person that has this really strong association with tech, with venture capital, with UAS systems and, and with airports. And yet, when you're written about in the newspaper, the Baltimore newspaper to be exact, they talk about how Extreme Home Makeover on HGTV is your go-to show on cable. Hmm. What is that all about? Wow. Is that my show? It's fun. <laughs> I'm learning something about myself on the podcast. Uh, you know, Ken, what is funny, and the reason that may come up, is my wife is an interior decorator. So she has actually been featured in Better Homes Gardens and other things like that. So maybe by default, I am... Uh, associated with that. But I have to admit, that may not be my favorite program. So you're not really taking all of those skills that you learned and redoing your house? <laughs> uh, no, no, that's not, that's not how I roll. But, um, <laughs> but that's a good troll. You got me there. I was not expecting it. Oh, it was good. It, it, it was very good. And uh, I'll send you a copy of that, and then you can talk to the missus and uh, <laughs> see how your name got used that way. All right. Sounds good. All right. Chris, you're at this company called CGH. It's a company that's really well known for things like providing a software suite for UAS registration and airspace mapping. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about CGH and what your role is there. Yeah, you mentioned that UAS uh, note notice and the um, background they have in aviation is incredibly strong. So 
The company's been in business over 25 years. It is still small, woman-owned, and uh, in a simple term, we are a management consulting and solution engineering company. Uh, we have extensive work with the FAA, um, and the area that you noted is uh, actually a project we have with uh, Ireland, providing airspace uh, awareness and uh, management of air traffic. Uh, but a component of that is one of the first, if not the first, uh, drone registry programs. It actually predated FAA's drone registry by three days. Um, so CGH has been at the forefront of the autonomous movement for UAS. And I think, you know, as we're looking at the future of CGH, we're finding ourselves leaning into UAS more and more, both on the integration of UAS into air traffic control, but also the way counter UAS plays. Um, so the only other thing I'll add to the context of CGH is we have uh, a history of bringing very seasoned FAA executives into uh, uh, into the house. Uh, so what that means for us is we have deep domain expertise on how the airspace works specifically here in the U.S., uh, but also with our international partners. Um, and I think that as we look at the UAS industry as an example, um, it's important to understand some of the hurdles and uh, challenges that the manned aviation industry has faced in the past. So uh, aviation specialists, we do a lot of consulting, we do some solution engineering. And my role in particular is around business strategy. I think uh, they're leaning on my innovation background, as you mentioned, to identify strategic partners, uh, as well as meet with our aviation stakeholders that covers airports, airlines, uh, and our government friends uh, to identify common needs and uh, flush that out, whether that be in conversations or solutions. Chris, I don't want to ask you for any trade secrets here, but as you and I look at the UAS market right now, and, and these are my characterizations, we have this industry that's really characterized these days by consolidation. Many of the small players are gone. There's capital burnout. We're not seeing investment in the airframes. Maybe we're seeing investment um, over in some of the sensor systems. And some commentators have just said there's general turmoil in UAS. If you were to go put on your, your magic hat and look into your crystal ball, where do you think the immediate needs are going to be in the UAS marketplace that deserve your attention, that deserve a little bit more research? I know we had touched a little bit on counter UAS, but you know, there's, it seems to me there's this gulf between the foundational technologies such as UAS registration and airspace mapping, and maybe you know, how are you going to do microclimate weather for that um, UPS delivery drone that's about to drop off something at your door? So where do you kind of see trends on the near term? Um, you know, what's interesting, I'll give you an example to start it off. Uh, FAA held their UAS symposium in Baltimore this summer, and it was a good combination of regulatory perspective coupled with where commercial industry is headed. So in some panels, you'll have Google Wing up there with Amazon talking about their visions for fully integrated delivery of medical supplies and packages uh, in the subsequent panel, you have your FAA leadership who are focused on the safety of the national airspace, the NAS, recognizing that there's there's complexities around this, um, and it's not 
feasible for us to just widely open it up. So there's been a, a natural tension in, in these types of conversations. And I think there are about 1,100 people at that particular event. And what that tells me, you know, if you look at that, are exponential with 10,000 attendees. There's a lot of hype and expectation in this particular market. But you need to contrast that with the need for regulations that uh, make the integration of drones feasible. Um, so your point about consolidation is right, and it's uh, something we can delve into later around uh, you know, what makes a startup successful, but timing is really interesting for this industry. What you don't want to do is be too early, um, and I, I think a lot of the effort and energy right now is identifying the use cases and the policies that are going to drive the industry, while at the same time demonstrating value in little chunks. So, you know, you, you see UPS is the first company officially registered as a drone airline. Uh, and then you also have um, deliveries uh, by, uh, of CVS materials that are you know, providing life-critical uh, elements. And I think the public can understand that. You know, it's not delivering a pizza to my back door. It's delivering uh, a blood that's needed for a transfusion to save a, a child's life. Um, I think those use cases, the ones that are for the public good. So I mentioned, you know, the healthcare, but I think there's use of, of UAS for law enforcement and for assessing remote areas. The, you know, the Department of Interior has used UAS for years to get to hard to reach places. As these use cases become more common, um, I think we'll see regulation catch up to that. But currently, we're right in that middle stage where uh, there's not that mass adoption. And until the regulation comes together, I think we're, we're sort of in that hold state. Chris, could I ask you to maybe put your regulator cap back on? Because earlier in your career, you had a distinguished career over at uh, the Department of Homeland Security. And I would have to think that in the areas you were involved in, you saw other examples of technology moving so fast that it was really difficult to put your regulatory arms around it. And I'm just wondering if you can kind of share with us from a regulator's perspective, what do you think about when you see tech? And I don't care if it's UAS, it can be anything, moving so blindingly fast that you have to come up with new processes just to, to stay even with the technology. What, 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 what do you think about? Yeah, that's a unique challenge for our friends at FAA in particular. And I can share this from uh, meetings with both DHS and FAA that I've had very recently within the last week or so. The leadership in FAA, as an example, they are very proactive and have actually pulled together uh, comprehensive ideas on what this is going to look like. What happens after that in any regulatory role is you need multiple sets of reviews, and the lawyers in particular have a lot of different concerns about the integration of UAS. Um, we talk about liability. We need the freedom of commerce, but we also need the safety of the NAS, and how does that balance work? Um, so, you know, taking back to my DHS days, there were many times that 
we would spend time with our airport and airline partners. We would know what would need to get done and we'd prepare a package. But that package would need to go through different wickets before I ever saw the light of day. Uh, there's a lot of that happening right now and it's for good reason because you want to make sure whatever you produce is sound. Um, the, in the context of counter UAS, for an example, um, there's been a big push. We're almost at the one year anniversary of the Gatwick incident. And even up until this summer, there were some restrictions on U.S. airports being able to even detect drone activity. And part of the challenge there is, great, you've detected something, and now what? And this is where being a regulator is very difficult because this is a system-wide problem that involves many different stakeholders. Um, so it's the airport, it's the local law enforcement, it's even the cities when you're talking about something like counter UAS. It's important to have some consistency and some uh, guidance to those entities so that what they act upon is uh, one, effective, but two, legal. So uh, to round that out, I mean, I, think, I don't think it's a lack of trying or the lack of knowledge. I think uh, a lot of that is moving, uh, but there's, they're being very deliberate about it. And I don't know if you saw this, Ken, but there was a recent report by Congressman Rogers and uh, Graves about DHS's ability and their authority to take down I saw that rights. one, Chris. Yeah, what did you think? Well, I did comment on LinkedIn on this, as you probably might have seen. And my feeling is, is that TSA has a lot of challenges right now. Mm -hmm. And they've got a primary mission, and that mission relates to the screening of passengers and to the screening of personnel who work at airports. And anything that pulls resources away from that primary mission, I think you need to think long and hard about whether or not that's going to be something you're going to pursue. And all I can think about is giving TSA a counter UAS mission pulls resources away. And that tells me there are probably other organizations that might be better placed that have missions that are more aligned with counter UAS mm -hmm. than what we have at TSA, because TSA is going to have to cut this from whole cloth. They have no place to start, you know, sorry, yes. but that's, that's kind of where it's at. Whereas we have other organizations out there that have been fielding and testing equipment for years. So I have a long rant on this whole thing <laughs> brought up, but it, I think it's important in terms of the national dialogue to have that discussion. Yeah. And you know, I, what I found interesting about the congressman's remarks is that they acknowledge that the federal air marshals, as an example, don't have that domain expertise to effectively run the program. And I think that's smart. And I think if you're going to do it properly, you need people that know all of the nuances. But it is sticky. I think just delegating that authority to DHS and Department of Justice, et cetera, is only part of the problem. So, Well, I, you know, one of the very insightful comments that a friend of mine made made to me recently, and it's going to be actually the subject of the last podcast of this season, and what she said was, it's not so important to pick out a principal lead agency as it is to empower the agencies that wind up being closest to the problem. So the drone flying over the airport, flying over the prison, you know, insert that infrastructure here mm -hmm. to empower them to respond. And we're going to talk about that, but I, I find that interesting. And I just want to maybe close out this section by asking you, 
Recently, there was a blue ribbon commission that was put together by a trade association in Washington that came up with some ideas for counter UAS. And I had noted that you had commented on this a little bit, you know, not so much specifically commenting on that report, but commenting on the fact, do you think it's interesting that private industry kind of had to jump into this fray and say, here are the ideas up front? I mean, why isn't it a blue ribbon commission from DHS, from Department Mm. of Justice? You know, why is it the industry that has to to jump forward on this? What are your thoughts on on that whole blue ribbon panel and that process? Hmm. What I can offer is sort of an ex, uh, some insights from my time at DHS. Um, one of the projects I ran was around biometrics and the idea that they could be used to secure access uh, to airports. You know, used to prevent employees and other workers. Uh, from spoofing the system. And carrying that banner on behalf of TSA, I was able to absorb a lot of industry feedback. And I bring that up because there are concerns that government partners would go into a back room and define a policy that would affect the entire industry without taking any of their operational realities into effect. And I think that is why the Blue Ribbon Task Force formed was to sort of put a flag out there that you know this is important to us as an industry. We already have been thinking about it, um, and we want to engage with you, DHS, Department of Justice, whoever is going to be holding the baton uh, in this dialogue, so that we come up with something that is effective and representative of, of what we're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. I think the reason. It's not led by DHS. They're a little bit late to the party. Um, with that said, I, they're ramping up quickly. Uh, they're partnering with FAA uh, to figure out some of those domain elements that they don't know, and that's been very smart, but it, it's still a learning process. So I, I think in the course of, uh, actually in early 2020, we're going to see some programs announced on both sides. And I think they're going to demonstrate how our government partners are going to move forward in this. Uh, And I think what you'll see are not overarching regulations. What you're going to see is demonstrations, uh, use cases, uh, pilot programs of sorts that will kick the tires on any given approach. Um, And I am uh, really excited about that because I think you learn a lot more by doing something than by theorizing what would happen. So just Closing out this area, we've touched throughout the course of the last 15 minutes um, about issues such as innovation in airports. And I would bet that a great portion of the audience listening is going to know Chris Rundy as the gentleman who developed and launched the Airport Innovation Accelerator, which is really, to me, I think, one of the most important activities that I've seen come out of the aviation industry in a long time. And I'm wondering, can you kind of help fill in the other half of that audience and and help us understand more about what is an innovation accelerator? Why specifically do airports need one? And what did that whole program look like, you know, from beginning to end? Um, Yeah, I think you're, you're right. This is sort of a different flavor. And, um, Taking it back to the beginning of the accelerator, uh, it was the brainchild of, of AAAE who saw that 
industry was changing before their eyes. You know, we have the Ubers and Lyfts of the world that were impacting airports. Uh, we mentioned drones. Uh, there was also autonomous cars and a variety of emerging technologies that either weren't being adopted or were adversely affecting airports. So with that, uh, they had broad concept of the accelerator. And in some ways, uh, I was offered a, a blank sheet of paper to figure out you know, what are the ways to help the industry the most. And well, we, we approach it from a few different angles. Uh, one of the first and the most uh, aligned with an association is just forming a community of in, uh, information sharing. At any point in time, there's an airport that's going to be trying something. But you'd be surprised how often they don't know what another airport is doing. So what you end up having is, is either a duplication of efforts or a lack of awareness that something is possible. So that was one sort of immediate area where we focused and we launched an innovation forum, uh, which is uh, very successful in getting airports engaged. We formed an innovation steering group that allowed airport leaders to identify the priorities and form project teams to address those issues. And then we also made a deliberate effort to engage the startup community uh, through things like the Shark Tank, where we're infusing new ideas, uh, so the technologies and, and the approaches. But a big thing for this industry is the culture. It's um, allowing airport management to see that this is not a buzzword, that it, it will it will help the bottom line. Uh, but also, there are other stakeholders in this industry, airlines in particular, that are investing heavily in innovation. You can look at the likes of JetBlue Technology Ventures that have set up their own investment arm. They're putting their money where their mouth is. So we, airports as key stakeholders and partners in this, uh, need to step up their game as well. Um, so, you know, the challenge with airports and this is what I was talking about with the community, is it is a very uh, bifurcated market, um, airport to airport. Uh, there's, they're all run uh, in different ways and uh, different personality, politics, and otherwise. So in some ways, it's difficult to have an industry-wide uh, approach. So you end up focusing on cross-pollination and uh, helping those leaders get the resources that they need to make change. Sure. Now, Chris, isn't, you know, I also come from the airline industry back mm -hmm. in the olden days, uh, which I guess wasn't that long ago. One of the things, though, that strikes me in this industry and, and having had the opportunity to step out of it and, and look back is that the industry, whether it's the airports, the airlines, the service providers are incredibly regulated to the point where we have to do it the same way like we've always done it because the regulations hasn't changed. So as you're putting this accelerator together, are you getting feedback that says, well, we can't be innovative because in this field we have these 85 regulations that say it's got to be done this way? Uh, or was that really not a factor because you're looking at areas outside of uh, the typical regulated um, areas? Yeah, I mean, I, if if we look at the recipe for success of this accelerator, one of the key components is regular relationships with our government partners. 
at the time that the accelerator was launching up, uh, our, folk, our friends at DHS were launching the biometric entry and exit, uh, you know, nationwide. And I mean, that's an example, but the, the integration with our regulators is particularly important for this industry, as you alluded to. And there are areas that uh, don't fall into the regulatory realm. Um, and the challenge that is pervasive actually is procurement airport by airport, you know, they're quasi-government. And in some respects, I, I've found airports and airport authorities that are even more complex than DHS. So to get an idea from formation through delivery, uh, by the time it's delivered, sometimes you're already behind the curve. Sure. And I just want to pause a second and, and, and tell the audience, I don't want anybody to get the idea that I'm against government regulation in aviation. And in fact, I believe that the regulation is responsible for us having the safest transportation system in the history of the world precisely because of that regulation. But, you know, the influence of regulation does change mindsets. So, Chris, talking a little bit more about this accelerator, clearly one of the issues that you all had to have confronted when you sat down at the first council meeting, the first innovation forum, you know, the first of whatever it was, would have been a conversation such as, well, here's a problem and we need to solve it. How did you go about collecting the problems and ca categorizing the problems and even, um, you know, putting them together so that you could put a work plan against it? I, I mean, you know, was this a gigantic spreadsheet? Was this, you know, a gigantic Word document? What memorialized the concerns and the problems you found? Yeah, well, uh it started off unstructured, talking to airports and by uh, nature, just organically, the biggest issues sort of raised to the top. So uh, at, at the beginning, uh, Uber and Lyft were new entrants to the curbside and uh, there were a few impacts that they were having on airports. One is, is the traffic and just figuring out how to manage that. Uh, the other is uh, revenue and how people taking Uber and Lyft instead of a taxi or parking their cars can impact, you know, the financials of an airport. So we, uh, to give you an example, I mean, this is where we dedicated time and went directly to the Ubers and the Lyfts and had one-on-one -on -one sessions with airport leaders. So we hosted, we called them solution summits, but a series of cultivated conversations that raised the major issues and What's fascinating about those conversations, Ken, is a lot of times we would see policies that those transportation network companies, the TNCs, had, and we'd scratch our head and say, this just doesn't make sense. And it wasn't until we were in a room together uh, and they actually gave context for that decision that we were able to flip the light on and say, oh, well, if that's the reason you're doing it, why don't we do it this way? So uh, communication uh, ends up being a really powerful innovation tool with those types of challenges. But just to round out the answer, the process did evolve and we got to a point where our innovation steering group fleshed out a whole matrix of issues and opportunities. And we went through a weighting and a categorization. It was sort of a combination of, is this something that everyone's struggling with? Is it impactful? And do we have the resources or the wherewithal to make an, 
any progress. Those are sort of the three key elements that we'd looked at if we wanted to form a, a project team or to go after something. And it wasn't for lack of issues. There's a lot of things. I think one of the bigger challenges when you organize a group of very influential leaders is uh, they have day jobs as well. So we have uh, the co-chairs were uh, Justin Urbachi, uh, who is now the COO of LAX, uh, and uh, Dave Wilson, the head of innovation at SeaTac. Uh, but we had a number of really strong leaders across the airport community. And what they did is they volunteered their time on the side to drive important issues forward. But even with that said, you know, you uh, as a airport leader, you, you end up, to your point, um, straddling time with your regulator friends, your airport leadership, airlines. So that that's something that was tough to overcome. Certainly at some point, you had this fabulous idea called the Shark Tank. And you had to sell that to the executives over at AAAE. And I know we've been using that acronym a lot. And for our audience, that's the American Association of Airport Executives. And they're the world's largest professional organization for airport executives. And you had to sell it to the bosses there. And I know the bosses at AAAE. And I am sure that if they held true to past performance, they had a lot of tough questions they were asking you. And then you had to take that to leaders in the airport community and say, I think that we need to do this shark tank. What was it like pitching a shark tank, not only to your bosses, but to industry leaders? Yeah, the origin of the shark tank was a lot smaller than you might think. Having been in the industry for years and attended lots of uh, conferences, uh, now that I was in the driver's seat for the innovation forum, I wanted to spice it up a little bit. Um, so it started off just as an idea to give a new flavor while you have everybody there. And the reception was excellent. Um, take credit to the AAAE executive team. They were incredibly supportive. Um, and as we reached out to our airport friends, they were enthusiastic. Uh, what was surprising is the number of startups that would throw their hat in the ring as well as uh, very you know, seasoned venture capitalists and other uh, experienced judges that were willing to volunteer their time, fly the way wherever we were to have these shark tanks and contribute their thoughts on stage. Uh, so I would say, you know, out of the gate, it was one of the most popular sessions we had. And out of that came some of the most impactful startup ventures that we experienced in the accelerator as well. Um, I can remember the first Shark Tank was out in Silicon Valley and we did, we had JetBlue Technologies Ventures and Plug and Play and Starburst Accelerator. Uh, as well as Lux Capital up on stage as the judges. And we had a, a, a range of startups that gave incredible pitches. And the ones that were on stage for that one time are still out there now and they're expanding quickly. So one of them is Ira, who ended up being a, a partner um, that provides navigation for, for blind travelers using augmented reality to give a, uh, the passenger Google Glass, you know, the effectively smart glasses that provide a live video feed to someone who gives them step-by-step -step directions. And they're out uh, more than 30 airports now, and they're expanding rapidly. Uh, another one is At Your Gate, who's doing, you know, At Your Gate delivery. They're now at nine airports. 
So what started as uh, just a desire to do something new in a, in a conference ended up being uh, a real program. I mean, something that we look back at as, as a good, uh, nice, you know, ribbon for the effort. Um, and I think the big thing is that we helped uh, those startups navigate this industry a little bit better than they would have on their own. Well, Chris, I think that started a movement. And most importantly, it started awareness of the startup community that the aviation industry was looking for solutions, whether you call it an, an airport or, or an airline. You know, one of, one of my observations over the years has been is that people on the outside are predisposed to thinking that the aviation industry has all the money and all the time and all the FTEs to develop all the magic on their own. And they're not looking for anybody or any ideas from the outside. Some segments, that might be true, but generally not. And I think what you accomplished there was incredibly remarkable to get that talent focusing on the airline industry. So so hats off to you on that. Um, I, I just want to round out the discussion on the Shark Tank. You have seen companies come and go mm -hmm. in all the various roles you've had. If you take a look at the companies that came to you and said, I want to be part of the Shark Tank, Chris, I want a chance to, to sit on stage, I want to pitch this idea, what was kind of the common thread between them? What was the, the thing that, that they really needed and wanted I mean, I'm sure the quick answer is money, but what was the thread that brought them uh, to you? Yeah, so we had a, a formal process for applying, and it was just a simple website. Uh, but one of the key things we asked is, what are you looking for? Do you, you want money? Do you want exposure to investors? Uh, do you want pilot projects? Or are you just trying to raise awareness of your solution? And it was interesting to see the diversity in the needs or the desires. I think the one that ended up rising to the top more often than not is they just wanted pilot opportunities. They wanted real experience in airports. And what they found is going door to door is very difficult. Uh, airports tend up being very busy and the ones that are in high demand is very uh, challenging for any startup to get airtime. Uh, so a lot of them were just competing or desiring a few minutes with those airport leaders and the desire to demonstrate what they're up to. And having seen dozens and dozens of probably hundreds of pitches in your career, what's that one bit of advice you have for that young, hungry CEO and she wants to, to go to the top and get her technology out and she gets the chance to go to your shark tank or a shark tank? What's the, the one thing you say don't forget to do in this pitch? Yeah, the most impactful and memorable Shark Tank pitches were the, also the briefest. I'll go back to the one that we had last year for the security Shark Tank, so focusing specifically on security technologies at airports. Uh, the company that ultimately won was D-Drone, and the most memorable part were two video clips, each about 15 seconds each. The first was a video of a drone going up clearly over Las Vegas. It pans around to the left, and all of, a seven, all of a sudden, there's a 737 coming right at it, no more than 25, 30 feet above it. Uh, so you see in real time uh, that this isn't as far off as it looks in terms of having drones going into airspace that they never should be in. The second picture uh, video was official uh, FAA testing of what happens when a drone goes into an airline wing. 
and they it's disastrous uh, it's catastrophic so there's no way you know in contrast to a bird that can go into an engine and be spit out the other side uh, these are metallic or you know other materials that a plane will not get through that so the most successful ones make a clear impact right away and they're really really crisp in their message the other thing i'll add not just on the pitch but to any startup evaluating this industry is be ready procurement cycles can be very long you have regulators in the mix um, bringing it back to the example of D-Drone, uh, they are right after the Gatwick event, they deployed in six additional airports within over the course of six weeks uh, over in Europe. Uh, they're still sort of waiting for FAA to open up the gates so that they can provide the same type of capability here in the U.S., and that is just a, a, a reality. To your point, regulation is good for um, securing the airspace and keeping things like that going. Uh, however, th there are times that we need to figure out ways to be faster. Because I, I do worry from my DHS perspective, as well as working with airports, that one incident could really dramatically affect uh, our focus. And I think you've seen that, Ken, as well. Yeah. Uh... Absolutely and most certainly. And uh, as you know, I, I, I have some pretty firm ideas on the whole subject of counter UAS, but mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll save those for a later podcast towards the end of the season. Um, what, what I want to do with you in the last couple minutes we have here, Chris, um, and yes, I did deflect that question quite well, but, <laughs> but what I, I want to talk to you about is your experiences as you've gone through the shark tank, as you've gone through the accelerator, as you've seen problems that the aviation industry has from the ramp to the boardroom, literally, where do you think the whole issue of autonomy fits? Whether it's um, the Uber and the Lyft autonomous vehicles wanting to use an airport someday, you know, to baggage carts that will be zipping across the ramps without a driver, do you sense that the aviation industry knows the questions to ask, is thinking about where these vehicles need to go, or are we still just too a little too early out on these? You know, I th the first dabbling into autonomy actually was around autonomous cars. There was a big wave of questions and concerns on what their impact would be on airport uh, traffic and revenue in particular. And then that shifted into, do we have the infrastructure to even support these cars? Do they have charging stations or hives of sorts that um, would allow airports to be, you know, still critical in the travel process? Uh, but you're right. I, I think the use cases that are more near term and they're starting to pop up now are on airside automation. So for tugs and other things, some of them are also on the land side. So there are uh, airports delving into buses that are autonomous. And I think what hap what's happening now is, is a little bit of the kicking of the tires. And the industry is sort of built uh, in the model of leaders and followers. So as those ideas are de-risked, I think we're going to see a, a sharp spike in their use, especially if they are co more cost-effective or safer. But uh, I think we're, we're a little bit away from mass adoption for autonomy. 
Chris, one of the ideas that, that I've always had and, and thought about that I want you to either debunk or give me a big cyber hug over, um, depending on how you feel about this, is that of all the industries that are out there, that perhaps the aviation industry may be better positioned than others to work with autonomous vehicles because their footprints are defined, their procedures are defined, their fences are defined. And there's a lot of definition that exists within an airport slash airline environment that doesn't exist elsewhere. And so I'm thinking it's probably a fertile market for airports and airlines to look at this or not. Hmm. I don't know. But that's that's kind of where I fall on this. Well, yeah, I think there are a lot of comparisons of airports to smart cities. And when you look at autonomy at a city level, the volume of considerations is, is very large in contrast. An airport has its boundaries. It knows where it can and can't operate. And I, I do think you're right. I think it is easier to define use cases immediately uh, in an airport context. I think some of the challenges we see there or where you see other industries, I think like campuses, uh, universities and otherwise, uh, have similar opportunities of owning the space and identifying those use cases and adjusting the infrastructure to accommodate autonomy. So I think the evolution we'll see of autonomous cars, as an example, is you know, dedicated or prescribed lanes that are operated in a consistent manner. And I, I think airports are ripe for that as well. You know, shuttle buses and other things are um, known to have, you know, recurring schedules. So the predictability does make it right. I would agree with you. The only caveat to that is airports can be slow procurement wise and that can slow it up. That's because they have their 30 year plans. That's right. Makes Moscow look fast. Uh, wait, <laughs> who said that? I should not have said that. I have lost half of my airport audience right there, but <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully I've got uh, some friends still left on this. You know, just, just in terms of one final aspect, we, we've had some fabulous guests over this season. And one of the things that struck me about autonomy was the fact that the biggest gain that we're probably going to see in terms of reducing infrastructure footprint is not going to come from the driverless vehicles, but it's actually going to come from small package delivery, the micro packages. Mm-hmm the hub-to-hub packages. Do you find that airports may be more accepting of drone deliveries and um, air vehicles than they would have driverless cars because aviation is their business or, or not? Um, the question's interesting because you're right. They, they have discrete knowledge of air traffic. This is where our regulatory friends come in. If, if there are models that FAA and DHS uh, can wrap their heads around that allow for, for instance, the vertical takeoff and landing at or near an airport, and uh, you build out use cases like that, I can see that being a natural extension of aviation. You have air traffic control towers there. So uh, there are scenarios where it is simplified because we know that. The only complication there is there the primary focus is commercial air traffic. So anything that would complicate, you know, uh, commercial airliners taking off would probably not have a lot of consideration. But if you look at LAX and their big uh, parking garage that's going up, you know, about a mile away from 
the terminal, uh, you can see a scenario where there's a eVTOL landing spot uh, for folks that need to get there and get there quick. And I do think that that's a very bright future. I, I'm not entirely sold on eVTOL. Uh, you know, I think shortly we'll be seeing eVTOL flying, whether it's a vehicle that has four propellers or one that's a hybrid with 50 propellers and two wings. Uh, that's coming. I'm not certain that I understand the business case enough to say that, yes, we will be able to properly fly these things safely. We'll uh, be able to staff the organization and we'll be able to deploy them um, more cost effectively than, say, what we can get from a current helicopter. But that's yeah. another conversation. So, Chris, I just cannot thank you enough for having this wide ranging conversation. And you are welcome back anytime. We've got to finish our counter UAS discussion. Um, and there are a couple other discussions that you goaded me into that we will get to. But uh, I'm sensitive of your time and really being here with us and sharing your story with this audience has been fantastic. And uh, on one last note, if you don't watch HGTV, <laughs> what are you streaming right now? Hmm. Well, I'll admit now that I'm a Green Bay Packers fan, so if they're on TV, there's a good chance I'll be watching that game. You know, I, I end up, Ken, not watching as much TV as I do read or listen to uh, books on tape or podcasts, surprisingly. So, sort of a, a lame answer to that, but I've yeah. enjoyed talking with you. I appreciate it. You're doing Thank a lot you. of great work, so keep it up. And uh, do you have a bet on the 49ers-Packer game this weekend? Yeah, I think it'll be a good game. How about that? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the ultimate diplomat through the last minute. <laughs> You're the best. Thank you so much, Chris. All right, Ken. Thanks.